don't you go ahead, grab a Bible, open it with me to John chapter 21, verse 15. Gospel of John, one more time here. Uh, my name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. I just want to welcome you. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're with us, especially if you're new. We know it's sometimes hard going to somewhere that's new, especially a church that you've never been before. We're just glad that you're with us. Every week we have an opportunity as a church family to open up God's Word together, to read it, to study it, to seek to apply it to our lives. This is an, an act of worship, and so we get to engage in that way this morning in John 21. Uh, we've titled the end of the Gospel of John, kind of this mini-series we're doing, Now What? Because, again, that's naturally the question that these first followers of Jesus are asking. Right? They've seen uh, the risen Jesus. He's alive after his death and crucifixion. And so they're saying, now what? What does this mean? For them, for this Jesus movement, for the world at large, and we as a church family, right, we trace our roots back to Jesus and his first disciples. And we see that uh, this is part of our story. We're part of this continuing movement. And so we look back and we ask, wow, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for us as well? Reminder that we're starting a new series next week called Love Your Church, where we're going to spend a few months talking about what does it mean to be the church, what, is, uh, what are the, the privileges of being a part of a church, the responsibility that comes with that, the mission of the church, what are we supposed to be about as the people of God. Uh, really excited to jump into that with you. We're going to be using a book uh, that we're reading as well as a church family. So the sermons will be based on this. And then we have a book called Love Your Church that uh, we'll be reading through. We're going to uh, use that in our community groups as the discussions as well. So we want everybody to have a copy of it. Uh, many of you have already grabbed one in the past few weeks. Uh, we want to get one in your hands, though, if you don't have one yet. But I think we might be out of hard copies, which um, I guess is a good problem to have because you've all grabbed so many. If you, if you took like three or four books, give a few back maybe, and we'll you know, make sure everyone gets one. But we're going to order more. Don't worry. Uh, if you didn't get one yet, there is a clipboard with a little Love Your Church picture, and you can just write your name and email on there, and we want to make sure to get you a copy of it. So if you don't have one and want one, put your name on that clipboard, and we'll get you a copy. Sound good? Okay. Good, good, good. Uh, next Sunday is the official launch of that. Uh, let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll jump in, okay? Father, we just come before you with humble hearts and ask for your help. Um, as, as we just sang out loud together, uh, we ask for, for faith. Give me faith, Lord, acknowledging that uh, even faith is a gift from you. Repentance is a gift from you. In our own strength, uh, we cannot... Uh, respond the way we ought to. We need your spirit. We need your help. We need your power in our lives. And so, Lord, we come to you and ask for your help. Give us faith. Give us understanding of your word by your spirit. Give us conviction by your spirit about how to respond and apply this to our lives. Lord, we love you and ask that you just have your way here this morning. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, people, this is it. Chapter 21, last chapter in the Gospel of John, the last section of the last chapter in the Gospel of John, John 21, 15 to the end. You know, I looked back to where we started this whole journey in the Gospel of John, and it was February 21st. 
2021, last February. That's about 18 months ago, which uh, I'm sure, you know, some people could preach through John and take longer. And surely there were times where I felt like we should have slowed down and I wish we could have gone in more depth. But still, uh, 18 months, that's a pretty good chunk of time, right, to be in this same study. Do you remember what life was like back in February of 2021? It's kind of weird. Um, we, we were doing church outside still. Many of you were there, church out on the lawn. Uh, I think at that point we still might have been doing the RSVP, like tell us you're coming to church so we could put the seats out for you. We were social distanced. Um, there were masks, right? We didn't um, move inside until April of last year. And so um, Easter was outside that year. Uh, Tom Brady had just won a new Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Bucks this time. Uh, our son Shepard was three months old. Pastor Ian and the Alstrom family weren't even here in February of 2021, right? A lot has happened since February of 2021. I found that really encouraging just to reflect upon these 18 months that we've been studying the gospel of John, because in that amount of time, think about all the different variations and, and ways we've worshiped as a church, right? Outside and inside, masks at some point, Thankfully, no masks now, right? That's kind of nice. Um, social distance for some of it, and then crammed in, you know, at, at other points. Um, online for some of us, uh, for many of us, right? We're back in person. Uh, it was just an encouragement to remember how you, church, uh, through all of that, were able to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus. That's looking to Jesus, worshiping Jesus together. I'm so encouraged by your, uh, your graciousness, your patience, your charity with one another, how you were so patient and understanding and how you didn't let the political storm around us tear us apart as a church family. Right? We kept the main thing the main thing. We continued to worship together with all the different hoops that that required and jumping through. And I'm just grateful for you, church. And I'm just encouraged that we can continue to look to Jesus together. And we see in the end of the gospel here a reminder, again, of the main thing. That main thing that we kept the main thing the whole 18 months, right, and, and longer that we've been journeying together. The main thing, looking to Jesus, responding to Jesus, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus. That's exactly what we see an invitation towards here at the end of John 21. You heard it aloud, but look at verse 15 again. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Just a reminder of where we are here and the context. The risen Jesus, he appears to the disciples. They had a really um, unsuccessful night of fishing, right? And then they encounter Jesus on the beach, and he miraculously uh, provides for them this abundant catch. Their nets are full of fish. The disciples join him on the beach, and there's breakfast there, right? A fish fry around this uh, hot fire, and Jesus, as a gracious host, meets their needs and encourages them and feeds them them. And then after that meal, Jesus engages in this dialogue with Peter. You see it in verse 15. And he leads with a question, do you love me? And he says, do you love me more than these? Now it's interesting because scholars don't really know the more than these. Like what are the these? Like, what exactly is that referring to? Is he saying, do you love me more than uh, your fishing gear, these fish right here, your old life? 
Maybe. Do you love me more than you love these other disciples, right? Are you committed to me more than you're committed to them? Maybe. I think the best explanation is he's saying, Peter, uh, do you love me more than even these other disciples love me? Because you remember at one time, that's what Peter claimed, right? Even if they all fall away, I will not. And we know that wasn't true because Peter, you know, stumbled and denied Jesus and the whole bit. But, but at least there was this devotion in his heart to say, I want to love you the most. And so he's asking Jesus if that is true. Do you love me? It's repeated twice more. You see it in verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So we start this morning with a question of love. It's a question of love. That's, that's the main thing for Jesus, right? That's where he starts, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's interesting that he uses that language, Simon, son of John. He doesn't just say Simon. He doesn't just say Peter. This is kind of the same language, this formal address that he used back in chapter 1 to call Peter the very first time. It's like this official public commissioning, Simon, son of John. It's this call on Peter's life. And there's, there's layers to this, right? You probably already noticed the connections that are between this encounter. We talked about this a bit last week. And chapter 18, the last time Peter was around a charcoal fire, he was asked a question three times then. And you remember the question was, aren't you a disciple of that Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? Three times. And every time his response was, no. He denies even knowing Jesus. Three times. I mean, of all the low points in Peter's life, of which there were many, right? Brother had a checkered past, okay? Remember there was one time Jesus called him Satan? That's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a low point, right? There was one time he chopped a dude's ear off and Jesus rebukes him, right? That, you know, not, the, not a highlight there. But, but I would imagine that the one event around which Peter would feel the most shame, the one event, the one situation, the one moment that Peter looks back on with the most regret it would have to be chapter 18, where he denies even knowing Jesus three times. I'm not with him. And so, like we talked about last week, it's, it's powerful that Jesus meets Peter here and brings about redemption. He, he gives Peter a chance to, to reaffirm his love and his commitment for the Lord three times asking him, do you love me? Following his threefold denial. The parallel is, is, is powerful, that Jesus goes to the place and he takes the very thing that we would think would disqualify Peter. He takes the very thing that we would think uh, would, would kick Peter off the team and he reverses it. And he uses it as this powerful redemption, this powerful reminder of the place that Peter still has with the Lord. We see the, the doctrine of redemption throughout the scriptures so clearly, starting back in the Old Testament with this idea of redemption being a, a circled around slavery, really. When someone was in bondage, a slave, they would be redeemed or purchased back, bought back, brought uh, back into freedom. 
something that is broken or in bondage, a slave, and in bringing them back to life, to usefulness, to, to freedom, to right relationship. Jesus goes to the place of Peter's greatest shame and he reverses it. And if Jesus does this with Peter, he can do it with us. Right? So I want you to picture Jesus taking you to the very place, the very moment of your greatest shame. Think about it. Your low point as a follower of Jesus. Do you have that place in mind? Your greatest regret. Your greatest moment that you wish you could do over. Was it that, that room, that, that trip, that conversation, that decision, that moment, wherever it is, Jesus wants to take you there. And he takes us there, and he wants to reverse it, and he wants to say, hey, even this won't keep you out of my hand. And even here, I'm going to ask you again, do you love me? I'm going to give you an opportunity to commit to me here that, that this place would not be a moment of great shame, but be a moment of a, a reminder of the power and the grace and the mercy and the redemption of God. Where he says, I don't care what you've done, how far you've strayed, how tainted you feel, if you're breathing, if you have ears that hear, would you hear his invitation to come home? Would you hear his invitation to receive mercy and forgiveness and cleansing? Each time Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. has to be one of the most powerful moments in Peter's entire life. Now, we've got to spend some time here, right? Because this is something that's so hard for us to wrap our heads and our hearts around. This kind of grace, this kind of redemption, to extend that to one another in the church, to extend that to ourselves as the Lord has done, it's not easy. And if you look back in history, it's interesting that, that this sort of issue caused one of the, the first great schisms in the church. If you look back to the third century, there was a persecution that arose towards Christians in the year 250 under the Roman Emperor Decius, in the year 250 and 251, where he declared every household in the empire has to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And anyone who's unwilling to offer sacrifices to the Roman gods will be punished. They'll be imprisoned. They'll be even killed. And some Christians in the empire in the year 250 and 251 courageously abstained and said, no, we can only honor and worship one God, one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so we will not do, emperor, what you are calling us to do. And many of them died or were imprisoned and faced great punishment and wrath. But many Christians in the empire, gave in. And when the heat of persecution was turned up, they complied, and they offered the, the pinch of incense, the, the sacrifice, whatever it was, to the emperor and to his gods, and said, okay, we don't want to die, so we'll jump through the hoops. And they basically abandoned their exclusive devotion to Jesus. And so the church, following this, had to figure out well, once the persecution died down, what do we do with those people who 
said they were devoted to Jesus, and then said, no, never mind, to save our own skin, we're going to deny Jesus and worship these other Roman gods. What are we going to do with those who lapsed in the persecution, they said, who honored Roman gods to save their own lives? And two camps basically formed. There were some, like the Bishop of Rome in 251, Cornelius, who said, of course we can welcome back in these men and women into the family. If they're repentant, if they understand what they've done and are uh, repentant in their hearts about it, of course we'll welcome back in, uh, them back into fellowship. But then there were others, like the church leader Novation and his followers who said, no, they lapsed during the persecution. Their true colors showed but they're not truly devoted to Jesus, and so they must remain outside of the fellowship. They cannot remain or cannot be reinstated because their sin was so heinous. Innovation would go on to add to the list. It wasn't only if you lapsed in persecution, but no, if you committed you know, the real big sins like murder, if you committed adultery, you're out and you're not getting back in. And so two camps formed. But only one would win out. If you go and read the history of the church and how it happened, there was a series of councils and the church and the leaders of the church at large rejected Novation and his unforgiving ways and his harsh and exclusive club, you could say, saying, of course sinners can be reinstated. Of course sinners can receive grace. And I imagine that they looked back to this very passage with Peter and said, of course, look at what happened to Peter and look what the Lord did to him. How could we deny reinstating our brothers and sisters who have likewise sinned? It's so encouraging, right, to see the history of the church, how the Spirit moved in the church and see that decision they made and how that also should be our posture. That we're, of course, going to sin and stumble, but what matters is, right, and a, a repentant heart, a striving, a desire to obey and be obedient, and yet grace where we fall short. And what happened was Novation and his cronies kind of set up like a rival church, and they continued on for actually some centuries. They were known as a group for their moral purity, for their impeccable orthodoxy, I don't think they got invited to a lot of dinner parties, but they knew their doctrine, okay? And they called themselves even the pure ones. Imagine, they called themselves the pure ones. Impeccable orthodoxy, moral purity, yet completely missing the heart of Jesus. So look again where Jesus starts with Peter. What's the main thing? It's a question of love. Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? God doesn't just want your church attendance. He doesn't just want you jumping through the religious spiritual boxes and the hoops. He wants your heart. Do you love me? Right? That's not a question just for Peter. It's for each of us. Do you love me? He says. Right? Is Jesus not only the Lord whom we obey and the Savior to whom we give thanks, but also the treasure of our hearts? the one in whom we delight, the one in whom we pursue with great joy, the one we cherish, Jesus, our Lord. 
See, in John 3.16, we, of course, read of God's love for the world so much that he sent his son. He loves us with a jealous, powerful love that leaves no room for rival loves in our hearts. So the question for us is, do you love me? Don't come to church, friends, and miss the main thing. So that's where we start with the question of love, but of course there's more here in the text, right? You see there's this kind of back and forth, and look at how how Jesus responds after Peter says yes each time. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, I love you. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Jesus responds, feed my lambs. He repeats it twice more. You see it in the text. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And then again, verse 17, a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of or tend my sheep And then once again, lastly, feed my sheep. There's some synonyms used, but I think it's kind of interchangeable. Uh, The idea is all really the same. Peter, you have a job to do, a task ahead, to shepherd and lead the disciples and the church. So we've seen a question of love, and now we see an assignment ahead. As Peter is reinstated, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Jesus doesn't meet him there with just a, now here, here, come, you know, let's just settle down and give me, you know, let's hug it out. Give me a big hug. Maybe they hugged. That'd be great if they did. I don't know. Text doesn't tell us, but he, he doesn't meet him just with that, a pat on the back. Should have been fine. But instead he gives Peter an assignment. Right? If you love me, then I want you to obey me in the work that I have for you to do. Right? Do you love me? Yes. Great. I have a job for you. He has an assignment. Jesus says, I'm going to change your profession from fisherman to shepherd. You're going to go from dealing with kind of, you know, slimy and floppy fish to smelly and difficult sheep. You have a new job. You're a shepherd now to feed and tend the sheep. And that's a prominent biblical theme, right, of shepherding We think of all the places that shows up in Scripture, most famously Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We think of Jesus in John 10, who calls himself the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. We think of the shepherds that were there at the birth of Jesus, out in watching over their flocks by night, shepherding on and through the scriptures. It make a great name for a child. <laughs> just saying, just saying. But the image right there, we, if you've heard it before, you're familiar with the image, right? A shepherd has to go through a lot of work to care for their sheep. Sheep are needy, sheep are dependent. They needed their shepherd to care for them, to lead them to food, to lead them to clean water, to protect them from flies or bugs or predators. The quality of life of a sheep was dependent upon the quality of care they received from their shepherd. Shepherds had to know their sheep, feed their sheep, lead their sheep, and protect their sheep. And so this first reminds us of the heart of Jesus for his sheep, for us, 
We're his people. We're his flock, the sheep of his pasture, the Psalms tell us. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for us, even to the extent of laying down his life for us. It reminds us of the heart of Jesus and the task of Peter. Jesus is the good shepherd, but Peter is now called to be an under-shepherd. And we would see really that same calling carry on to the elders and pastors of the church. That they share the same shepherding assignment. We look to 1 Peter. So the Apostle Peter later would write the epistle, 1 Peter, to the church. And there in chapter 5, he tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He takes that same language Jesus used. And he tells the shepherds to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, and not because you have to, but willingly, because you get to. It's a joy, it's a privilege to be a shepherd. He goes on, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, not because of your ego or your platform or your you know, uh, own brand or finances, whatever. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Lastly, not domineering over the flock, but setting them an example. Not being a bully and harsh with the sheep, not domineering. Setting them an example, leading them gently with the heart of a shepherd. That was Peter's assignment. Similar for pastors today. If you leave this church at some point, you move away or get tired of me or whoever else, and you find a new church, look for a church that has a, a, a shepherd heart, a pastor that's a shepherd that wants to love you, care for you, feed you. This is the standard that I'm called to, that pastors are called to. But we know that not all of us are called to pastoral ministry or to be elders in the local church. Right? You're not all pastors in that sense. And that's okay. We all have a calling, and your assignment might be different. You might not be called to be a pastor in the local church, but there's good work for you to do all the same. Still called to ministry, still called to be a witness, still called to wherever you are, share the gospel, invite people, pray for people, serve people, love people to the glory of God. And I think one of the big mistakes we've made in the modern church, and I'm guilty of this as well, is making you feel sometimes like, well, it's you know, the pastors who do the work of ministry, you know, we do the real important stuff and you just, you know, give us your money and just watch, I guess. <laughs> but, but that's not a biblical picture of how ministry is supposed to go, right? We're a priesthood. We're, we're all called to serve, to minister in the world. Your assignment just might look different from mine. Right in the body, there are many members and not every member has the same function, has, has the same gifting, has the same way that they <clears throat> contribute. And yet we all have a contribution to make, a way we are to build up the church and be about the mission to reach the lost and make disciples. And isn't that, if, you, if you're a parent, right, you see this with your kids, how uh, life-giving it is, how our kids flourish when they're given good work to do. I think about Zoe, as she she's, you know, has these different stages where she's very much like, I want to do it myself, or, or I want to help. And she's always asking, like, can I help, you know, like, do random stuff, like chop these vegetables with you. Can I, can I help make dinner? She just wants to be a part of the work. And we get into trouble, and things go south when I just tell her, no, like, sit over there, I got this. 
That's when, you know, idle hands, you know the deal. So it just <clears throat> doesn't go well, right? And so it's same in our, the same thing in our spiritual lives. If you just come to church and you just get the sense of, no, nah, no, nah, like, thanks for your willingness, but just, you know, sit tight and, and we'll, you know, we'll handle this. That's not good for the church. That's not good for our mission in the world. That's not good for you and your own flourishing, right? We're meant to contribute, to serve. We all kind of rise to that occasion. And so the key is finding what, what our assignment is in the body. More to come on this in a minute, but the principle here is that our love for Jesus, you see the connection, right? Our love for Jesus will demonstrate itself in our obedience to Jesus. Right? You see the natural connection. You love me? Great. Feed my sheep. You love me? Great. I have work for you to do. Right? And if we truly love him, we will step into that. Jesus said himself in John 14, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Right? And somehow we've bought into this, like, very odd version of faith where we say, I can just like give this mental affirmation and assent to this like list of ideas and then change nothing about my life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And we, we like, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Right? So if you, if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll, you'll do what I say. You'll, you'll walk with me. And think about that with other relationships, like with a marriage. Wouldn't it be very odd if you got married and you went to the altar and you said your vows, there was this like verbal affirmation of love, <clears throat> excuse me, and commitment and devotion, and then nothing changes in your life after you get married? Like you go back to your bachelor pad and you're living by yourself and you're not, you know, you're not, you're not spending your money any different, you're not spending your time any different, you're not considering the needs of your spouse, you're just like doing things all the way you used to do it? That we would say... There's a problem there, <laughs> right? We'd all identify that's not the way the relationship is supposed to work because there's this new reality in which you live where you're united to one another, where you love and serve one another, where you're bound together. So, so wouldn't it be odd if as Christians we say, well, yeah, I prayed this prayer or I you know, like signed this statement of faith, but now my life looks exactly how it did before. That, that should strike us as odd. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll come to my words and my commands and see them not just as suggestions, right? And the call to forgiveness or, or, or generosity or surrender or repentance or how we handle relationships, whatever it might be, we see those not just as suggestions, right? But as the commands and the ways of God that we are to obey. That's the O word, obedience. It's not a bad word, obedience. It's, it's, nece it's important, it's necessary. So he has an assignment for Peter, and he has an assignment for you. But now look, there's, there's more. Okay, we see that Jesus has more in mind for Peter than just his ministry of tending the flock and feeding the flock and shepherding. He even speaks to, you saw this, his death. This is where it gets, it gets really good here, people. Stay, stay with me. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. If you're confused, just stay with me. Trust me, it's going to make sense. Verse 19, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Okay, so here's what's going on. Peter's reinstated. Do you love me? Yes, great. Feed my sheep. You got work to do. Okay, Jesus adds, hey, by the way, when you're older, someone's going to take you away, and your hands are going to be spread out, you're going to go somewhere you don't want to go. 
And verse 19 tells us this is a reference to his death. So Peter, excuse me, Jesus tells Peter ahead of time, hey, I just want you to know there is an uh, execution coming your way, right? Having your hands stretched out is likely a reference to execution. Just a heads up, Peter, you're, you're going to die for me. Verse 19, it says that that's what Jesus is telling him. This is the kind of death you're going to die. But then he ends that with you, or excuse me, with follow me. Still there's the call to follow me. And it's important, a couple things, that verse 19 mentions that this is the kind of death that would glorify God. That Peter had a unique calling and would glorify God in his life and in his death. And we share that in the sense of, as believers, we're called to seek to glorify God and honor him and bring honor and fame to his name, whether in life or death. That should be our, the desire of our hearts, the direction of our lives, to honor and glorify the Lord in life or death. Have you ever heard the phrase, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Hear that? Remember the four spiritual laws, right? It's a, a tool to share the gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true. But that wonderful plan for your life might mean a painful death. That might be part of it. Which reminds us how all-encompassing discipleship to Jesus is, right? In life or death, it's to glorify the Lord, to honor him. Not just in the good times, not just when things are easy and going well for us, but even in an execution, an execution, a painful death, a martyr's death, we can honor and glorify the Lord. We belong to him in life or death. Now, that might sound silly, again, to, to Westerners, right, where we, we don't face threat of persecution, martyrdom, dying for our faith, but I assure you there are brothers and sisters of ours around the world who are in danger because of their commitment to Jesus and throughout history in other parts of the world who have been in danger because of their commitment to Jesus. And they look to a text like this with, with great encouragement, I would imagine, to say that in life or death, we can glorify the Lord. We are committed to him. We can be reassured that even if we face persecution in our faith and death, we can stay devoted to him and glorify the Lord together. So Peter has a unique assignment ahead. And we see the uniqueness of it in what unfolds, a specific task, a specific death that God has laid out for Peter. And what follows is probably one of my favorite exchanges in the whole Bible. Not exaggeration. Okay, I think this is one of my favorite exchanges in the whole Bible. I know I've said that a lot recently, like, I love this, this is such, it's so great, it's one of my favorites, but seriously, I mean it, I mean it, especially here, every time, okay, just, you gotta see how rich, how good, how life-giving these verses are, don't read ahead, okay, don't read ahead, stay with me right here, we've only gone to verse 19, okay, think with me, after hearing this, how do we expect Peter to respond? Think about the sequence of events, the miraculous catch, the breakfast on the beach. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Hey, by the way, you're gonna die a painful death, 
It's going to glorify me, but I want you to follow me. How do we think Peter will respond? I mean, this is the heart-to-heart if I've ever seen one, right? Peter, are you with me? Do you love me? Yes, okay, great. Shepherd the flock. You're going to become the rock of the church. You're going to be this key leader in the life of the church. You're going to die a martyr's death, but I want you to follow me, right? Eyes in, heart-to-heart. Here we are. Jesus, Peter, I want you to follow me. What's Peter going to say? I mean, maybe at this point we would expect him to say, yes, Lord, I accept. Sign me up. Here I am, Lord, send me. I know I denied you, but I'm back. Thank you for reinstating me. Let's get to work. I'm with you. And just how Sam goes with Frodo to the very end, even to the very fires of Mordor, I'm with you. Denier no more. You have my heart, Lord. Let's get to work. Is that what we see? Not really. Okay, verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This we know is John. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? So verse 20, Peter turns and he sees John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What? You can say it with me. What? Verse 21, Peter saw him, John, his other disciple, and he asked, Lord, what about him? Are you, are you kidding me? To this, think about the moment, the heart to heart, the reinstatement. Do you love me? Yes, the call on his life, and you're going to die for me, Peter, but I want you to follow me. I have this unique assignment for you. And Peter, in response, turns, and he sees this other disciple. He says, well, what about him? This, uh, what about him syndrome? The initials, W-A-H, what about him? Or what about her? W-A-H, you know how it spells? Wah! That's what it sounds like he's doing, just wah! He hears his unique assignment, and he doesn't like it. I don't think he likes the part about his death, his martyrdom, so well, what about him? If I have to die, does he have to die too? Do you see the wheels turning in his mind? Am I the only one who has to die this painful martyr's death? Or what, what about him? Does, does John, does he, does he have an easier road? You know? Does he, does he get something better? Does he, is he going to get exiled on a nice island of, called Patmos and write the book of Revelation? Is that, well, why does he get that? And why do I have to go to my death as a martyr? What's the deal? You ever, ever, ever been there? We do this, right? I do this. Wow, what, what about him? What about her? If I have to deal with this, if I have to deal with this heartbreak or this challenge, or I don't really like that, Lord. I'm not really thrilled with my assignment today. And so what, what about him? What are you, what's going on over there? Why can't, I, why can't my life be more like that? You know, this pain, this heartache, what about them? I don't see that they have to go through this. So why do I? Why do I have to walk this road? What, what about them? Is it going to be equally challenging for them? I have to deal with this, you know, this anxiety, this depression, this, this struggle in my life and my family and my relationships. Well, they seem to be doing a lot better over there. What about them? What about him? Why can't my you know, story look more like that? 
You're going to use this person in this big, powerful way? This big, you know, visible, noticeable way? Look at the impact they're having. What, a, why, what about... Hmm. See? We're unsatisfied with, with our calling because we're too busy looking at someone else's. Right? Was it Teddy Roosevelt who said, comparison is the thief of joy? How often we compare our place, our role, our gifting, our impact with someone else's. And we don't like our story as much. We say, well, the grass looks greener over there. What about him? What about her? Why aren't they struggling like I am? Or why, why can't I have it easy like them? And Jesus responds to Peter. And he responds to each of us with some of the most freeing words in the entire Bible. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Hey, you're going to be executed one day, Peter. And if I want John to stay alive, what is that to you? Translation, it's frankly none of your business what I do with John. So mind your business, right? Control what you can control. You must follow me. It's emphatic there at the end of 22. You must follow me, he repeats. Do you see how freeing that is? Peter, you don't, you don't have to worry about John. You don't have to worry about her. You don't have to worry about him. Just you follow me. Right? You embrace what I've given you to do. It's not your circus over there. It's not your monkeys over there, right? Just handle what I've given you to do. Right? How many times I, the Lord has come to me and said, you know what, Matt? You're having enough time like handling your own business. I don't think you need to be worrying about someone else's. You don't need to worry about that. What is that to you if I do this, that, or the other with them? You follow me. I want you to control what you can control. I want you to embrace the unique assignment I've given to you and no one else. Play your part in the story. Don't try to be a poor imitation of someone else. Be who God's called you to be. I have to hear this over and over again. Preaching to myself. I learned this maybe for the first time early on from a, a friend of mine, one of my best friends growing up, Wade. Um, I worked for a summer at Hume Lake Christian Camps the summer of my freshman year. All summer I was there on the maintenance crew. Anybody ever in Hume Lake? What's up? Yes. All right. Love it, Hume Lake. Okay. So I worked there for the summer, had a great time, loved it. And I didn't go, I didn't work there future summers, but my friend Wade, the following summer, he went on summer staff and worked there the whole summer. And so I took it upon myself to write Wade a manual for how to have a great summer at Hume Lake. <laughs> so Wade, I, I've, been, I've been there. Let me tell you, here's how to have a great time this summer on staff. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should avoid. There were different places you could live, like as a staffer. I was like, you want to live in this part, uh, not over here, right? This is where the action's at. This is where it's fun. This is where you can be with the guys. Hey, there's this, you know, this other, this opener Hume Lake does. I don't know if you've ever been to Hume Lake summer camp, but they do this big skit opener, this big like extravaganza to welcome people to camp. And I was like, you definitely want to be a part of that opener. It's going to be so fun. You're going to make a ton of friends. Went down the list. And uh, I went to visit Wade like a few weeks after he started up at camp and he was working there. It was like maybe a month or two in. And I was eager to find out how many of my notes, you know, he took to heart and applied. 
And I was distressed to discover that the number of suggestions of mine he took was zero. <laughs> and he didn't live where I told him to live. I was like, I said to live over here. You're living over here. What's going on? I said to be a part of the opener. You're not a part of the opener. Just everyone down the line. He's like, and he was real, you know, gracious and gentle about it. Uh, he didn't, you know, rebuke me or whatever. But he, in his own way, basically showed, you know, thank you, Matt, for your suggestions. And, um, but I'm going to, you know, do things my own way here. I'm going to, you know, uh, navigate this how I think God wants me to and how I want to have a good time here at, at camp. And, and it reminded me, God reminded me in that moment, you know what, Matt? Um, your calling and where you find life and joy in the specifics might not be where everyone else finds life and joy and what they're called to do might look different. And that's okay. In the body of Christ, there are many members. We have different giftings, different callings, different passions, different things that we're going to give our time and devotion to, all under the banner of commitment to Christ and his kingdom. There's a lot of variation underneath that. Verse 23 shows, uh, it just kind of repeats it, right? Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. So apparently some in the early church thought that because Jesus said this, uh, he was saying John's not going to die. And then he clarifies, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So it says John, you know, the author of the gospel, he's like, I'm just clarifying. Jesus didn't say, John, I wouldn't die. He just said that if that is what Jesus wanted to do, it would be none of Peter's business. Right? It's reaffirmed. And so, friends, for us, as we think about now what, the encouragement is to to find your part in the story, the unique assignment God has placed upon your life with where he's placed you and the giftings he's given you and the things on your heart and your spheres of influence, the way you can uniquely contribute to his work in the world. You see the close of the book in verse 24 and 25. We'll just read it simply. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. It's just John saying, this is me, I wrote this. Verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. It's a beautiful, simple description of the ministry of Jesus. How vast, how unsearchable, how even we have this record knowing what we need to know, there's still much more to learn about the Lord one day when we see him face to face and we'll hear and see all the other things he did that will still likewise leave us in awe and wonder. There's no one like him. And we remember our Lord uh, most notably when we come to the table of communion and we take these elements. This is the heart of the gospel, the heart of why he came the heart of what this book is all about, the heart of what our church is all about, the good news of Jesus, that we have a Savior who came from heaven, who laid down his life for us, taking our sin and the consequences and the punishment for our sin upon himself to the cross, dying in our place that we might be forgiven and find life and be adopted into the family of God. And so we take these elements uh, twice a month here at church to remember that and celebrate that. We practice an open table here, which simply means if, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
You put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We invite you to participate with us, even if you're you know, from out of town or visiting or this isn't your home church for whatever reason. I'm going to pray, and then we'll take the elements together. Father, we come to you, and we thank you for your, your great mercy and grace that you have saved us, not by our works, not because of things that we have done, but because of the work of Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, his righteousness imputed to us, his perfect obedience, Lord, his faithfulness to the mission. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And I prayed this morning just for anyone who especially can relate with Peter in his sin and in his failure, that they would hear your voice. Do you love me? Just this invitation to once again reaffirm their love for you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your broken body and shed blood on the cross for us. Our hope is in you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.